Recording in progress. She's so annoying, isn't she? She is. <laughs> she is. Uh, the disembodied voice that tells us that we're recording. Recording in progress. Why does she have to seduce yeah. me? There's someone at Zoom's headquarters that's actually saying that every single time. <laughs> it's just like, they're getting ready to start. <laughs> it's the FBI agent listening in. No, no, no. They... Um... For us, though, it's a problem because we talk too much. They're like, oh, are they going to start now? They keep getting they false start starts. <laughs> <laughs> we like flag on the play. Too much. Let's play. Yeah. <laughs> uh, penalty. False start. Re- defense. <laughs> I don't know. Football. football. I was like, football. football. I think five Taylor yards Swift. or 15. <laughs> Taylor Swift. Is she with the, the chief guy? The chief guy, yeah. Okay. You mean world famous athlete Travis Kelsey? I don't even know who they are. She- <laughs> I barely know who Taylor Swift is, okay? Yeah, she's she's not a Swifty. She's not a Swifty. And we're okay. We accept her for that. That's right. And who she is as a person. Everyone and welcome to the show. I'm Blair and I'm Kirsten and we are mediocre, mediocre content. content. And we do, in fact, have someone lurking in the background. If you'd like to introduce yourself. <laughs> Hi, I'm Blair's Chris. I'm back. <laughs> welcome back. That's right. That's that's show that possessive ass and apostrophe. <laughs> you have to. There's too many Chris's in our life to not that's do true. that. Yeah, and they're all spelled the same way, and it's mm -hmm. really weird. It's true. Very confusing. But I'm the first return guest, so I think that's a win. That's true. That's true. true. Um, We'll try not to rub it in Tyler's face too much. Or other Chris's face. Or other Chris's face. (laughs) Please do. It's a request of mine. It's part of my uh, my writer for the uh, coming back on. I'll call him right now. (laughs) Yes, I have a writer. Oh, my God. (laughs) He's very posh. Very posh. Well, we're super excited to have Chris back for the show, and we're also super excited to be basically done with January, I guess, is really what we're talking about. We got one more episode in January. Um, It's explosive. Hint, hint, (laughs) cough, cough. I'm so hyped. Um, But yeah, I mean, it is almost the end of January. Everybody give up on your New Year's resolutions now. Uh, It's perfectly acceptable. We've all given up by now anyway, so we're good. It's true. And if you haven't, good for you. Uh, You are the few, the proud, and the lovely. The Marines. No, we're not. (laughs) We don't associate. We don't do that here. Um, This is a Navy podcast. (laughs) We are very specific. specific. Unofficially, though. Yeah. Unofficially. Yeah, Yeah, there you go. But uh, if you are continuing your goals, congratulations. You're almost a month in. That's big goals. Big goals. Good job. Yeah. And I think we have a lot to get through today. So we do. We do. We'll yeah. get we'll get started. Let me let me just claim. So um we are not experts on anything, even though we brought Chris on. He is not an expert on 3D printing <laughs> at all. Um, he does know more than Kirsten and I it's about true. 3D printing and additive manufacturing, but uh we'll get there. Mm-hmm. Um and if you have if you come to this podcast to get any kind of advice. Don't do that. We don't do that here. You know this already if you've been listening for any amount of time. Um, And we encourage you to do your own research and learn along with us. Um, And yeah, 
So uh, Kirsten, tell us about Vikings because that looks interesting. I'm so excited. Oh my God. So for the good news, we're starting off in the Viking era, which I think is so stinking cool. So county archaeologists have recently dated the remains of a Viking ship burial on a small island called Lekka and found it to be the oldest one in all of Scandinavia. It dates as far back, um, <clears throat> or it dates so far back that a technical question about whether or not one can even call it a Viking ship burial, because funerary activities predate the Viking Age. When the term Viking began to be used for a Scandinavian mariner who spent some time trading and some time raiding, this is kind of where they're like, well, is it actually considered Viking area? Are we actually not considering it Viking? I don't know. They said Viking. I'm sticking with what they said. Seems but, reasonable. Yeah. This burial mound in Lekka is located in an archaeologically rich area called Namdalen. And here there's a very unusually high concentration of these burial mounds. But while most are surveyed and unexcavated, this one had been excavated at three different times already. Uh, it's right called Hirschless Login. <clears throat> I'm not even trying. <laughs> you notice I've skipped over it like three times. Yeah, I casually. Just so you guys know, that's how I'm pronouncing it. Hirschless Login. Uh, every time I'm going to pause right before it and you can say it because okay, <laughs> I'm not here good. to offend people. <laughs> I think I'm I think I'm think butchering it. By no, I think accident. you nailed it. But no. I think it's like yeah. pretty. I mean, there's a lot of G's in, and <laughs> SHs in there. So, uh... A lot of Hoggins in there. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so records from the 18th and 19th centuries show that the mound contains construction materials such as nails, bronze cauldron, animal bones, and seated skeletons with a sword. Horrifying, actually. <laughs> um, but these have long since disappeared and interested or interest in, you know, Blair's Hergeslagen. You're, yes, her, her <laughs> for Norway's recent ancestors concluded. Now, a team of archaeologists and a professional metal detective went to survey the mound as part of a collaboration, and they found iron nails and other evidence to suggest that this mound was the site of a ship burial in which a man was interred around 700 CE, decades before the generally accepted start points for the Viking Age. I love it when that happens. I know. I love this messes everything up. It's glorious. The timeline is shattered. <laughs> we are all feeling good. Uh, the other factor in all of this is the ship was massive. Okay. Historians often credit the boat building methods developed by the Scandinavians as one of the several trends and forces that launched the Viking Age. But here, the appearance of a large seaworthy vessel means that the technology and the will, capabilities, commercial interests, etc., existed to use it even more previous to 700 CE's date. That's insane. That is Viking insane. <clears throat> Viking raids may have been ongoing within Scandinavia at earlier periods, but the first outward acts of aggression by medieval Scandinavians are recorded as happening within the final quarter of the 8th century. The other side of the Viking identity, that of the traders, may have already been fully developed at much earlier dates, such as the Merovingian period, which is also a very interesting word, during which this burial was constructed. Uh, there is an archaeologist, Lars Forseth, from the county authority that was kind of manning this investigation and the discovery of the ship. 
and they are quoted saying, I think that the location along the shipping route plays a key role in understanding why Hergeslagen burial mound is located at Lekka. We know that whetstones have been traded from Trondelag to the continent from the mid 700s onwards and goods transport along the route is key to understanding the Viking age and developments in ship design before the Viking age. Ships uh, would have been great signs of status. They provided economic links from the continent to these desperate Norwegian fjords and inlets. And anyone who owned one would have stood to make a lot of money in the presence of the ship burial and the other mounds in the Nundalen suggest to archeologists that Forsyth, that the area of Nundalen may have played host to an elite merchant society. Big news. Fancy. Big news. The yeah. best. The best. Very true. Um, so that's kind of sciencey, but the next good news is very sciencey, and I've named it "It's CRISPR, Not Crispy," and <laughs> that's because um, there is a gene that is called CRISPR or C R I S P R. And while the original CRISPR gene editing technology could only target 12.5% of the human genome, a new method developed by engineers at Duke University is now expanding access to nearly every gene to potentially target and treat a broad range of diseases. Hmm. The study published in the journal Nature Communications involved collaborators at Harvard uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, University of Massachusetts Medical School, University of Zurich, and McMaster University. That's a lot of universities. Yes. With this new tool, says Pranam Chatterjee, who is Assistant Professor of Biomedical Engineering at Duke, we can target nearly 100% bless you, of the genome with far more precision. CRISPR-Cas is a bacterial immune system that allows bacteria to use RNA molecules and CRISPR-associated, or Cas, proteins to target and destroy the DNA of invading viruses. Since its discovery, researchers have raced to develop an arsenal of new CRISPR systems for applications in gene therapy and genome engineering. The team investigated the new tool's potential therapeutic uses for genetic diseases that were untreatable with the standard CRISPR system. This first test was Rett syndrome, which is a progressive neurological disorder that predominantly affects young females and is caused by one of eight mutations to a specific gene. The second was Huntington's disease, which is a rare inherited neurological disorder that causes the degeneration of neurons in the brain. Using the new technology, the team was able to alter previously inaccessible mutations, providing potential therapeutic opportunities for both diseases. To make edits to the genome, Cas proteins utilize both an RNA molecule, which guides the enzyme to a targeted stretch of DNA, and a protospacer adjacent motif, which I'm not 100% what that is, but the acronym is PAM. So you just spray some PAM on it, you'll be fine, which is a <laughs> short DNA sequence that immediately follows the targeted DNA and is required for Cas protein to bind. Once a guide RNA finds its complementary DNA sequence and the Cas enzymes bind the adjacent PAM, the enzyme acts like scissors to make a cut in the DNA, triggering the desired changes to the genome. And all I could think about was that, I don't know what your school did, but there is a, a video, uh, 
I think it's like the hoedown or something and they like learn how to split DNA or something. I don't know if that was like genetics or a DNA situation. We did not have a festive, it's like like a song that they- Yeah, we had a lot of songs. We did not, we did not have that. Missing out. Um, I'll have to show it to you later. (laughs) But- Performance. um, I'm not performing it. I don't even remember all the lyrics to be honest. Um, but the most common CRISPR cas system is the Cas9 from Streptococcus pyogenes bacteria, which requires a PAM sequence of two guanine bases in a row, which is GG's if you're a gamer. In previous work, Chatterjee and his team used bioinformatic tools to discover and engineer the new Cas proteins, which only requires a single guanine base PAM to make the cut. So you're literally cutting in half what's required to do this now. And this change made it possible for researchers to edit 50% of all DNA sequences. At this time, Chatterjee's collaboration at Harvard and um, you know all the associated people, um, they're engineering a separate variant called Spry, and that could bind to any one of the four DNA bases that would that could form PAM and has a stronger affinity for adenine and guanine, unfortunately. So it's like kind of a catch-22. It can do more, but you need more, just the way it is. Uh, There's drawbacks for both systems, obviously, and Spry is slower than its counterpart. So the bottom line is we may now be able to access the entirety of the genome, which is fantastic now that we've coded it out and we know what it needs. But also we can start using these tools to address neurological diseases that are affecting a vast majority of Americans, unfortunately. And some of them are hereditary and you want to be able to try and figure that out beforehand. But if you can't, at least you now have a tool potentially to use to help correct that. Yeah. Science Definitely helpful. Rules. We like science. We like it. We like yeah. it. When you listed all the colleges, I was like, well, if these many people are involved, then it must be big. <laughs> There's so like, it must many. Be a big thing. So I mean, many. I guess it has to be because you're going to have like professionals that can code it. You're going to have professionals that can engineer it. You're going to have professionals that know the chemicals required. You know, you just kind of collaborate on all the elements. And they're sure. like, well, did you yeah. think about this? And you're like, no, because well, it's not my field. <laughs> I bet everybody's doing like different or the similar research, right? Yeah. So they're all like comparing notes and all that stuff. It's beautiful stuff. Okay. Beautiful. <laughs> so as you guys know, Chris is here. Woo. Yay. Um, And he's going to talk to us about 3D printing. I'll go over some stuff, but like for the most part, I think... Chris, would you like to give us your definition of 3D printing or additive <laughs> manufacturing, if you will? Or I can read the one there too, if you want. Uh, it's, it's I, I, to can, you. I can give a short little. Uh, okay. So just my disclaimer, I took a class on additive manufacturing uh, last quarter and I've taken another class years ago. So this was 2015 on rapid prototyping, focusing on additive manufacturing, 3D printing. So that's saying my level of knowledge is mostly the internet <laughs> that's ours <And> too listener, <laughs> yeah. additive manufacturing and 3d printing are like basically the same thing yeah um, yeah and we can explain why it's called additive manufacturing later i have that yeah but uh 3d printing uh mostly comes down to you'll see a lot of diyers using these it's a flatbed with a nozzle laying layers of plastic normally uh, that is not liquid but also not fully solid at that point 
and it, so it's melting together essentially. Yeah, it's yes. a liquid. Uh, Ew. It's kind of like Oreo cream. It's a uh, oh it's wow non Newtonian <laughs> fluid at that Full point. Full circle. Full circle. <laughs> I brought it back. Uh, but so yeah, you print layers of plastic normally, and you can do some really cool things and make shapes that you normally wouldn't be able to make otherwise. Like you can make hollow structures that'll be lighter than normal. You can also, you'll see houses nowadays using concrete, uh, building houses that way. And it's doing it in a way that is partially quicker, but also cheaper because you don't have to use normal manufacturing methods. So it's pretty fascinating stuff. That's Thank amazing. You. Yes. So, yeah. Um, we're going to talk about the history of 3D printing. And there's going to be a lot of acronyms. So <laughs> we're going to count them all together and see if we can get through this. Okay. Let's do it. <laughs> all right. So <clears throat> 3D printing is commonly associated with maker culture. And if you've ever, maker culture just in general is like people who like to do hobbies that have to do with things that are like woodworking or you know, um, quilting or stuff like that. Um, and there's a really cool show on Peacock with Amy Poehler and Nick Offerman called Making It. Check it out if you haven't seen it. It's like a reality show. It's really cute. cute. Um, not sponsored. Yeah, not, not sponsored. sponsored. Um, just obsessed. <laughs> Yet. And so 3D printing is associated with maker culture. Um, hobbyists and amateurs, de desktop printers, accessible printing technologies like FDM, which we'll talk about in a minute, and low-cost materials such as ABS and PLA. Um, this is largely attributable to the democratization of 3D printing, so basically making it affordable for the everyday person. Um, and that came from the RepRap movement, which we'll talk about. Um, so let's get into it. Um, 3D printing began as an idea for accelerating industrial product development through faster prototyping. Even though there are a few patents, uh, there were a few patents beforehand, Chuck Hall is typically credited with the invention of the 3D printer via his stereolithography Stereolithography Apparatus, or SLA, which is acronym number one for those who are counting. Excuse me, I that is four. <laughs> what do you know? So it's in the history, though. Trust me. Oh, in We're, the history? Those ones, are, those ones are repeated. I promise. So that's four. <laughs> I'm starting from, I'm starting from that. The history. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um. So... He's cre he created SLA, um, patented in 1984. So, despite Chuck's fame, multiple technologies were being developed in parallel in parallel in the late 18 1980s, and there were several companies found in this period that was critical to the development of the technology. In 1981, the first patented device for using um, UV, ultraviolet, acronym number two, light <laughs> to cure photopolymers was awarded to Haido Kodama in Japan. He designed it for rapid prototyping as it was intended for making models and prototypes, but there were no interest 
and the patent was abandoned. So basically oh. the early stages of 3D printing was basically just cheap ways to make prototypes for like different models and things like that. Nice. Right, Chris? Yes. Okay, cool. That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> um, in 1984, French inventors, Alain Le Mihout, um, Oliver De Witt and Jean-Claude André. Did y'all hear that? Yeah, what was that? <laughs> Some guy being that? annoying on the street. Oh, it's like the freaking four-wheeler last time. I know. I'm so sorry about that. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I don't know this guy, though. So oh, I can't darn. Yell at him. Um, okay, so the French inventors submitted a patent in which... Like Hayato's uh, UV light, it was used to cure photopolymers. Um, General Electric abandoned the patent, citing the lack of significant business potential. Hmm. So that was kind of pushed to the side. <laughs> oh my God. It really <laughs> is. Four-wheeler 2.0. <laughs> this is what happens when I, when I record in a different room. It's true. Um, also in 1984... Only a few weeks after uh, Le Mehot and American Charles Chuck Hall um, filed his own patent for the apparatus for production of three-dimensional objects by stereolithography, thus also coining the term stereolithography, which is a repeat of acronym number one, SLA. <laughs> Yay. All right. Too many 19, acronyms. 1987. Hall invented the STL file, which is a file format native to the stereolithography CAD software created by 3D systems and acronym number three. So Woo! STL. And in the same year, founded 3D also founded the 3D system. So obviously the 3D systems had to come with the STL file because it's part of it. Anyway. Uh, also in 18 or 1987, American Carl Deckard filed a patent for selective laser sintering SLS number four, acronym number four, and in the same year co-founded desktop manufacturing, which is DTM acronym number five. That's so many. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to my um, life. This so is many. Yes. Yes. In 1989, American S. Scott Crump submits a patent for fused deposition modeling, FDM, acronym number six. <laughs> and in the same year, founded Stratasys? Yeah, Stratasys, yeah. Cool, with his wife. Jeez. Yay. I feel like that was just a history of collecting different letters together. <laughs> Basically, yeah. <laughs> Everyone was like, I'm going to get the cool new acronym. <laughs> All right. Um, so commercialization. From the late 1980s to the early 1990s, the industry underwent very rapid commercialization. For The first machines were big and expensive, and their makers competed for industrial prototyping contracts with mass market manufacturers in the automotive, aerospace, health, and consumer good industries. So I do you remember when... Uh, Sweetbriar got their 3D printer. No. I was like freaking out about it. I didn't even know we had one, to be honest with you. Yeah. No, <laughs> the engineering department is was very new when we were there. Yeah. And they got a 3D printer, I think, like our sophomore year. And everyone was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And we're kind of like, <laughs> we were behind the times, obviously. <laughs> but like, um, 
it was it was a huge deal. Nice. Yeah, it's it, that's when it became real cheap to get plastic 3D printers. It mm. that was uh, the explosion the early 2010s. Yeah. 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 So, uh, in 1987, uh, 3D Systems released the first commercial SLA, which is a repeat of the acronym number one. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and they called it the SLA one, which is a printer. Oh, okay. Yay them. Yay them. How original. In, in 1992, the FDM, acronym number six, <laughs> patent was finally granted to Stratasys, which led them to release the first FDM, acronym number six again, printer in the 3D modeler. Hmm. Okay. So that's printer number two, the 3D modeler. In 1992 as well, DTM, acronym number five, released the first commercial SLS, acronym number four, printer, uh, the Sinister, Sinister, Center Station, Center Station, Station. 2000, that's what they called it. Because I'm assuming S-I-N as in center station is like synthesis or sin something, right? Probably. Some kind uh, of engineering term. So it's going to be center. So it's talking about melting metals, essentially. Uh, uh, oh. That's probably where they came up with the name from. Yeah, I feel like that's very purposeful because it probably mm-hmm. serves a function, like telling you what the function is. Yeah. Yeah. Love words. <laughs> 1994. German company Electro Optical Systems, EOS, acronym number seven, Ooh. a new one, uh, founded in 1989, unveiled its EOSINT um, M160, the first commercial metal 3D printer. Mm. As in it printed with metal or it was made of metal? It was, pr- it printed with metal. Ooh, yes. I didn't know that was possible. Yes. Oh, are, so possible. Ah, <laughs> I've seen the 3D printer for the houses. So in terms of like other material, that's about as far as I got other than plastic. Yeah. Ooh, we're getting big. Like <laughs> <laughs> All right. Just a quick other section and then we will take a break. Um, so the democratization. So in the early 2000s, like Chris said earlier, um, the fierce competition for profits, development in material science, and the ending of many patents, which is helpful, similar to like when drug patents expire, then you get a bunch of low cost drugs because they can repeat it. Mm-hmm. And it's not just made by like one company. So a lot of patents expired. Um uh, so 3D printing finally became affordable for the masses. This was the decade that 3D printing took off in the popular imagination. Uh, manufacturing, which has always been the domain of heavy industry and big money, came to the people. Mm-hmm. In big 2005, money. the open source RepRap project, um, which is short for the Replicated Rapid Prototyper and acronym number eight-ish. Yeah, Um, (laughs) I would count that. More of an abbreviation than an acronym, Uh, I would say. Um, Launched with the aim of creating self-replicating 3D printers capable of printing their own parts, causing popular interest in the technology and to skyrocket. Hmm. 
In 2009, key FDM patents fell into the public domain and MakerBot launched their desktop 3D printer called the Cupcake CNC. So cute. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it cost hundreds of dollars, not thousands, and all components were downloadable from Thingiverse, which is a website dedicated to sharing the sharing of user-created digital design files. Mm. In 2012, the year that we went to college... <laughs> And Old. graduated high school. Oh, um, <laughs> but not Chris. He graduated in 2011. Oh, don't get Um, so old. Form Labs release the Form One, the first affordable SLA printer, through a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign that raised 2.95 million in funding. 2013 Proto Labs Network launches as peer-to-peer -peer 3D printing a peer-to-peer -peer 3D printing service. And um, that's actually where I got a lot of this information from on their website. Uh, allowing mass transactions between people buying prints and people with machines. It quickly grew to be the single biggest 3D printing platform in the world, over 50,000 printing hubs, uh, before pivoting to focus on helping its business customers by making all forms of custom manufacturing more accessible. And in 2014, key SLS patents fell into public domain, leading to a whole crop of companies making smaller and more affordable SLS uh, printers. Nice. So, um, side note, when I was researching this episode, um, a lot of the articles were like, did you get a 3D printer for Christmas? Do you not know how to work it? <laughs> and <laughs> so it was just like, uh, how to like 3D print with your 3D printer. Nice. Um, and 3D printers on Amazon, like just a general look through, they're about $169. Um, and they also have these 3D printer pins, which I don't really understand. Um, <laughs> they they with them. melt and print plastic, yeah. but it's like... You have to deal with your own crappy handwriting. Yeah. That's the only difference. <laughs> yeah, I don't really like that. I feel like it's glorified puffy paint, but that's just my opinion. You and I know a lot about puffy paint. I ain't gonna lie. Yes, we do. Yes, but we do. what I love about things like this, this reminds me of the trend with the Cricut and the glitter yes. Stanleys or the glitter mm. Yetis and things. Mm. The one thing I love about this is similar to cross-stitch or knitting or whatever. You get to sure. share with people that now have a hobby that you can all like hang with and discover together. And once yes. you print something like super freaking amazing, you can share that and now everyone can do it. You're right. You're it's right. Beautiful. It is, it is lovely. I feel like at the base of this though, your hobby is plastic. Like <laughs> look, that is your are, hobby. Look, there you are know worst hobbies. To, you know how to melt. <laughs> plastic and put it back together in a way that nobody else knows how to do wait wait wait. we know how to melt plastic and make it better than it was before which is a plastic object great <laughs> <laughs> look i mean I, this also 
it though as opposed to having a glitter mess in your kitchen because you're learning how to glitter your own yeti cups, yeah, you're so right you're so right <laughs> the printer will just do it by itself <laughs> yep print your own yeti cup save yeah, you print a lot your of money. own yeti cup there That's you go right. a new line he's a genius peep jinx in the background of Chris's. i know <laughs> just licking himself <laughs> awkwardly salem's on the other side oh my god <laughs> Oh my goodness. I have been abandoned. For real. Um, okay, so I think we'll take a break here. And then when we come back, Chris will answer our questions and we'll talk about how 3D printing works and stuff like that. I hope you're ready, Chris. Always ready. We receive many questions regarding what exactly mediocre content podcast can be used for in the average person's daily life. Today, we will address this question head on with a list of everything you can do while listening to MCP. Kirsten, take it away. Laundry, cooking, biking, hiking, driving, typing, working, walking, jumping, um, tattooing, swimming, okay, Kirsten. launching a rocket, math homework, hopping, racing, singing, All right, showering, I, shaving, I think they sweeping, get it. Jogging, eating, spinning, zooming, fishing, Here's it. boating, Hello. teething, shopping, Girl, can you hear me? Taking out trash, gardening, building a house. Um, okay, it appears driving, we've lost her. Um, well, just so you know, you could do a lot of things while listening to Mediocre Content Podcast. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's the whole ad. And, um, uh, I'm going to go head over to the second half now. Um, Kirsten, come on over when you're better. All right. Bye guys. Not listening to your wife eating peanuts. Okay. So let's talk about something much more boring. Uh, <laughs> do you want to actually welcome everybody back? Welcome to the podcast. We talk about <laughs> things sometimes. And uh, <laughs> what is this episode on again? This is about 3D printing. Perfect. And my husband's going to tell us about 3D printing um, and how it works. Go. <laughs> Chris's Science Corner. Woo! See, I need a jingle. You do. Sorry. We'll <laughs> so, get that for you next time you're on the pod. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you. I've been I've been asking for it every I mean, single day. As honestly. the editor, I will decline. <laughs> this oh, is- <laughs> as a social media executive, <laughs> I will also decline. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah, see, I'm sorry. Right. Denied. You just have to talk yeah. about right. 3D printing. I'm sorry. I, I gotta yeah. talk with Tyler about protest or striking from you know, <laughs> U- unionizing. Husbands against mediocre content. (laughs) Oh my god. The hamps. The hamps. (laughs) That's acronym number nine for those that are curious. (laughs) For that are counting. Yep. For those in the audience. (sighs) All right. 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 So let's talk about what 3D printing is. And uh, Blair mentioned earlier additive manufacturing. Uh, So I say so a lot. Technically, 3D printing is a form of additive manufacturing, usually related to printing plastics. But additive manufacturing kind of encompasses a lot more than just that. Let's talk about comparing it to how do we normally make products, right? So usually you have your subtractive methods where you'll take like a block of metal and then you remove the excess and you'll end up with a part. That's Mm. the most like normal method you think about when you talk about making something. There That's are also correct. some other and methods. And that is called that is called subtractive manufacturing, correct? Subtract. Yes, that's the 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 because you're subtracting term. materials from yeah. the overall amount of material. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, 
All right. You've got some other methods like casting <clears throat> where you'll take like a sand bed and then you'll put the molten metal into that sand mm -hmm. bed or into mm -hmm. uh, a shell, mm -hmm. which will then make your part. You'll, which requires some post-processing, you know, sanding it down or, you know, to make it more attractive or to meet your requirements. Which is called we'll formative manufacturing. So many times. Yes. <laughs> Not to interrupt you, but I just wanted to, no, no. you know. To interrupt you. <laughs> <laughs> At the last major one is when you do injection molding. It's what you'll see with a lot of plastics is where you'll take like a flat sheet and you'll blow it up or you'll press it into a shape. That's what you'll see a lot of your normal things you use that are plastic. You can see it with metal, but it's a little bit harder with that. Have some more limitations. Some examples those would are, be uh, plastic water bottles, mm. uh, you know, cans. Uh, mm -hmm. When they go into that shape, they actually take a sheet of metal and they press it into the shape of a can. Nice. Cool. So those are your, that's how you normally get things. What's fascinating about added manufacturing is you're taking that raw material and you're using the exact amount you need, and then you're turning it into a part. It's That's why you'll see a piece of plastic that is made from 3D printing has no waste. It's, it's fascinating because it saves money in the long run. But it's also really cool too because it allows you to make changes sooner. When you're normally producing a, a part, you have to like get them to make the cast and then you have to cast it and then you have to check the part. And then that process can take a lot longer mm -hmm. to change something in 3d printing, which is why you talk about rapid prototyping is I can print the part, check it, and then make the modifications on my computer program and reprint it. Nice. It's a lot faster to do that prototyping. That's why it's really good for that. Question. So, and then you can just talk. Yeah, yes. I, I was going to say, Kirsten, you go first. I also have a question. Well, my thing is, even though it's rapid prototyping, is it technically? Well, no, never mind. My question's dumb because I was thinking, like, if you're adding up all of these different pieces and you print it and you have to reprint it, is that just kind of like a waste of material because you're continuing to having to reprototype it and redefine what the parameters are and readjust and everything? But I guess technically, if you make a mold and it's the wrong mold, either way, it's going to be a waste of material since you already made it. I don't know. So, it no dumb questions about that, honestly. It, 3D printing is not necessarily fast, though there are the companies are coming with ways to do it faster while still mm. getting the desired resolution you want. It comes down to, can you recycle the material? That's one part I've been seeing a lot of people looking into. Can How often can you reuse material before it becomes too yeah. uh, tainted or, mm -hmm. you know, no longer the exact same material anymore? Yeah. But ultimately, comparatively, it is faster because, and you're wasting less time on that, the process from, you know, each iteration from design to print versus design to creating your cast to then printing. You also, there are some limitations to when you do deal with like punching material, it is a lot harder to do already. So to mm -hmm. make those changes is a lot more difficult. Yeah. Yeah. So, so cheaper, faster for the most part. Yeah. So my question is on the, like when you're telling the 3d printer what it is you want, like what qualifications do you have to have and what do you have to know in order to tell the computer this is what I want? And also how hard is it to make changes to that, what mm. you input already? Mm -hmm. So the process from idea to print is actually not super difficult. 
you'll start with, you know, your idea. I like to do it on paper, you know, I'll sketch out mm -hmm. my, my thought of what I'm looking for, you know, take mm -hmm. my measurements and then write those notes down. And then I'll go to, you mentioned CAD or computer aided design. Mm -hmm. There are a bunch of programs out there from ranging from free to super industrial and expensive uh, that meet whatever requirements you need. You'll essentially take those measurements and take a shape and you'll Simply starting from, let's talk about a cube. You know your cube is six inches for each side. So you'll essentially say, hey, I want this shape. And then you'll be like, each side six inches, and it'll produce that cube. You can then subtract with other shapes. You can do via triangles, spheres, and it can break down to all those simple shapes that are added together to make the part you want. So you're basically just inputting numbers. You don't have to like code yeah. or anything. Yeah. So these programs nice. usually take care of the coding behind the scene for you. There nice. are also some cool open source programs and probably some non-open source ones that deal with codes instead that you can make it easier to repeat things if you like to think about it on that like line by line scale. Mm -hmm. Or you can use your like basic shapes and like dragging the component and measuring it out with the program to do that. So you can think about it either code or geographic or not, uh graphically mm. uh, how you create your part in this cad program you then produce what's called your stl file which is essentially a bunch of triangles it's like the computer breaking it down to the most basic shape and it takes that stl file and you're going to run it through what we call a slicer which is a program that's going to take that stl file which are your shapes and turn it into essentially a bunch of lines. It's the way that the nozzle of your, the little robotic portion of your 3D printer is gonna move and it creates a track. So essentially it says, hey, start here, end here, release producing the material the whole time. Mm -hmm. And it'll essentially be a bunch of lines. It accounts for the speed you wanna print, the size of the nozzle. So, you know, if it's a thicker material, uh, that you're printing, it'll account for that or smaller and it'll add more lines to account for that. You're going to take that, what's called the G code. It's uh, some computer science way to handle and a bunch of different programs or other manufacturing methods use it like CNC milling, where it's like using a little, those little fast raster moving robotic arms that remove material. Also mm -hmm. use that. It's just a bunch of lines it, and it tells it, Hey, X, Y, Z go from this point to this point. And then you plug it into your printer of choice. Uh, some of these printers will have their own slicer program to handle that. Some use any G code. And then you put your material in and you just say, hey, print. And it'll do it. Does so it have to stay hooked up to the to the printer the whole time, like your computer? No. So most printers just require a memory card, an SD uh, card to put the G code in. Uh, you might have to make some setting changes or choices. Uh, uh defining if it doesn't already have the material specifically defined in the G code telling it, Hey, this is what we're printing with. Yeah. And then most of them are self-sufficient. Um, it's getting cooler because there are ones now that connect to the internet that you can just send it from your computer directly to the printer or oh, cool. from your phone. It's so becoming... you could go, you could go on chat GTP or something and have like AI create you a 3d printed shape. And then you could send it in theory to like a wireless 3d printer. Yeah, so with enough information, ChatGPT, you can ask it to generate either an STL file of the shape you want, mm -hmm. or some of them even the G code. The only thing you'll need to know really is if that G code is compatible with that printer. That's where that right. slicer portion. Some of them mm -hmm. require their own 
slicer to add the extra information because it usually deals with things like the nozzle side, the speed limitations, the uh, printing material, uh, sure. and some extra functions that it needs to add into that geocode. Kind of like sure with a regular printer, like versus like a copier. You have to kind mm -hmm. of have this, you have to have everything chat or talk together, you know? Yeah. Yep. yeah. And all the settings have to be correct. But yeah, so with some of those, like, especially those code-based uh, STL files you might generate, ChatGPT can do it real well. Uh, the program I've been using lately called OpenSCAD, mm. which is an open source mm -hmm. program, I which is code-based. And like you essentially say, hey, I want it to be, you know, this is the start point and then make the XYZ from there. Uh, I can have ChatGPT assist me with that to get specific geometries and code lines I need. Nice. Yeah. Cool. But... But uh, when we were talking about the added manufacturing, though, there are actually a bunch of different types of 3D printing methods beyond just, you know, printing your plastic, which is called, I think it's like fused filament, something so it's have, like triple F. I have some types of 3D printers. Do you want me to read those really quick? And then we can. Yeah, let's go live. Let's go yeah. uh, printer by printer first. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So these are the types of 3D printers that I found. <clears throat> Uh, so there's vat polymerization, which is a liquid photopolymer that's cured by light. Okay, that's the uh, you were talking about SLA, the mm. uh, the stereolithography. Yes. That's essentially what that is. Nice. Okay, it's, uh, start with like a vat of liquid or resin, which is UV light will cure it. So this stuff is like if you set it out in the sunlight, it'll turn into a solid chunk of, of resin plastic. Mm. But since you're using like individual locations of light either all at one time at like it's like essentially like a projector screen or mm -hmm. a single beam that'll do a small layer and then it'll lift up the print bed so this is like inverted from your normal printer it actually raises up and it you'll see it builds it upside down mm -hmm. and it'll essentially create a little layer and it'll lift up and then it'll do it again and it selectively uses uv light to turn portions of that resin into solid Makes sense. Mm -hmm. Cool. Okay. So the next one is material extrusion, which is molten thermoplastic, which is deposited through a heated nozzle. Yeah. So that's that triple F, what we've been talking about normally yeah. when you talk about 3D printing. When you uh, see the videos online of like yeah. the printing plastic. Yep. Yeah. That's the normal method. There are some other materials you can see. I've heard of using plastic infused with carbon fiber, with metal. Um, mm -hmm. but mostly it's your DIY or 3d printing plastic, uh, either just a flat bed with, a the nozzle that's unenclosed, or you'll see some enclosed fancy ones. Mm -hmm. Um, that's where that whole, like having some knowledge can be very helpful for super precision, precision prints. Um, for most people, if you're just printing a cute little toy or something like that, it won't matter. But if you're doing something that has specific, you know, strength requirements, you're dealing and certain abnormal plastics beyond the normal PLA or ABS most people use. You have temperature requirements. So you can heat up that enclosure to ensure it stays proper the whole time and creates a strong part. Nice. So another question really quick. What, how do you determine? So I get that you have to put in like the dimensions for your mm -hmm. particular shape, whatever you want. Um, but also like if you want a piece of it to be thicker than another piece, how do you like, is there a measurement for that as well? So 
if you wanted to do multi-dimension uh, nozzles for printing, usually requires a more complicated machine. That's oh, so you have to have... switch out the whole thing. Yeah, some have dual oh. nozzles or multiple nozzles, but most of the time, a single nozzle diameter is sufficient, and you'll essentially design how what points you want to have thicker walls would be a good example for a variety of reasons, and you could handle that in either the STL file section or handle the the slicer can handle creating its G code where normally it creates hollow interiors that uses just a bunch of triangles or other shapes to like act as a fill, but without actually taking up massive amount of material. Mm -hmm. uh, you can change how it does that at different layers, depending on how complicated your slicer is and its ability. Nice. Gotcha. Okay. So uh, another printer is powder bed fusion which is so, powder particles that are fused together, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So this one's kind of cool. This is when you're starting to get really into the more nuanced of metals normally. Mm. So imagine you have metal ore that's like in the like pellets, right? Mm -hmm. And you just, you put it where you want it specifically, but the rest of the powder bed is something like sand, something that won't melt. And you essentially deposit a layer of that and you essentially choose where you want to melt it at and it's going to make that part via selectively melting that powder bed where it needs to. Nice. Yeah. And this is this is where you start getting away from your normal what you would call normally 3D printing and kind of going back into that bigger realm of additive manufacturing. And also more okay. expensive. Way more expensive. <laughs> also <This> that. Is, <laughs> you, so your DIY or print that's just going to use a bed and a nozzle is like on your 150 200 scale as soon as you add an enclosure you get into at least 500 to a thousand minimum and as it gets bigger you add more expensive on top of that or if you add the ability to do multi-material prints so you know your things that are multiple colors most commonly starts adding an extra five to you know thousand dollars on top of that so you're already looking at a fancy large box of you know three grand for high quality and high ability but as soon as you change the material as soon as you go into these metals you're adding minimum like 10 grand and then you start getting industrial or research say, base and you're 50 like, realistically something that to that scale is probably for a business of some sort would be my guess or research yeah, facility or, or research. Yeah. yeah. You're looking to research or produce something mm -hmm. for a very specific reason. This is not your DIY or this is your. <laughs> or maybe it is. Science. You know what? Go, go ham. <laughs> you can afford it. Go for it. <laughs> exactly. Right. Okay. Um, there's also binder jetting, which is droplets of liquid binding agent that are deposited on a bed of granulated materials, which are then later sintered together. They're sintered. See? S-I-N. Yeah. So this one is kind of like that powder bed fusion where it selectively melts, you know, that powder bed. Uh, this one kind of it creates a full bunch of layers of the stuff, but specifically the points where it wants to, it'll fuse with essentially metal with like a plastic of some sort this one i have less knowledge on but ultimately you take this part that is metal and something else and then you essentially melt away the plastic portion of it or a wax i think they can use and then you end up with a, a finalized part so this one requires more than just the 
normal method to come up with a finalized part. Uh, some of these other metal ones specifically require like post machining to like make things smooth and nice. If you want it that way, this one requires that extra post processing. And then there's direct energy deposition, which is molten metal simultaneously deposited and diffused. Um, and then there's sheet lamination, which is individual sheets of material that are cut into shape and laminated together. Nice. So that direct energy deposition, that's your 3D printing metal, essentially. But this one actually takes it to the liquid phase. Uh, kind of scary because it's like these things shoot really fast, tiny droplets of metal. Horrifying. And it's it. <laughs> you could stick your hand underneath it and you won't have a hand anymore kind of thing. <laughs> um, yeah. Sag. And it goes so fast, it looks like a string of metal, but it's closer to very fast-moving droplets. These machines are expensive, but they're really yeah. cool. Yeah. And then the sheet lamination, this is something you probably see even without the, the a machine doing it. You ever see those like wooden you know, thing those wooden like little toys that are like layers and layers of wood that are cut out and then glued together? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's where that kind of comes from. You can do it with some metal and it's it's less what you see. I don't think I've seen very often being used and we don't talk about terribly too often because it's kind of the most different method of additive manufacturing because think about it, you're cutting to shape so you're still wasting material but you can do some very intricate layered components mm-hmm. if you did it this way. Nice. Nice. Okay. So I'm going to kind of wrap it up a little bit um because my computer is about to die um (laughs) (laughs) professional um so practice some practical uses for 3d printing and this is not an exhaustive list but things that are currently used to or are are being used Are being 3D printed. printed. Ah, Okay. All right. Prosthetics for patients who need them. Those are being 3D printed. Because you can customize it to their exact dimensions of their leg or arm or whatever extremity they need. Um, Bones and organs and blood vessels, um, which is not what we talked about today at all. Um, (laughs) No. but it's being done and car parts hmm. are being 3d printed and sometimes jewelry too because you can get really intricate like beautiful pieces of jewelry um seems cool yeah um so overall benefits of 3d printing would be very low startup costs um quick turnaround large range of available materials like we talked about um design freedom at no extra cost so like you don't have to pay a designer and it doesn't cost extra to like make it pretty yeah um each and every part can be easily customized as well so you depending on who your client is or like if you need it for a certain experiment that you're doing or whatever Mm -hmm. it's easily easily manipulated um, some limitations would be uh, less cost competitive if ha- at higher volumes. Um, so because it's so easy to make sometimes, you know, supply and demand. Yeah. Um, limited accuracy and tolerances, lower strength and um, anisotropic material properties. Um, 
And I think that just has to do with material and like, yeah. you can only make something so strong with a 3D printer, I would imagine. Is that yeah. right, Chris? Yeah, you're talking about layers vice a solid piece. So there are some yeah. inherent weaknesses that are, is a whole area of research on how to improve. Fair. Um, and then it also requires post-processing and support removal. So that's another thing is like, sometimes um, I think like the molds that it is, yeah printed in you have to kind of take off or um you know plast some of the plastic parts have to be snapped yeah off I, that's so satisfying to watch yeah yeah it's very <laughs> satisfying to do but you're correct there are requirements for things like overhangs that need support because otherwise if you're printing into air things don't come out as right, <laughs> you, also right. To deal with, you, you also have to like print what's called a raft where it attaches to the bed and makes mm. helps ensure it doesn't move when it prints because if a part moves when it prints, the machine's not going to know that and it's going to ruin everything. And that's how you the end up stringing or broken parts. Yeah, yeah. yeah, my favorite videos. I know it's not fair to the person that's printing it, so I don't mean this rudely to them. But my favorite videos is when they start them and then they come back and it's just a mess of just like this <laughs> melted plastic web nest, and they're like, "Well, oh, that's no. not good." And I'm like, "It is not." <laughs> I need to watch some of those videos. Oh, I've never. So I've fun. only seen like the satisfying ones where it's like perfect. Oh no, these are the ones that they walk into and they're like, "This is a nest." <laughs> <laughs> now they have cameras on some of these printers yeah. at another $500 so or yeah. and also some of them from my understanding is with the camera you also have it like on your phone so if it starts to malfunction you can like end yep. the printing process before it's it gets true. bad mm -hmm. uh some you some of them I've, I've used a printer that has the ability and after the first layer it'll essentially look at it and it can nice. kind of tell if they're stringing occurring and it'll ah. say hey do you want to continue and it will prevent it from wasting <laughs> Because it's you just that hit first full layer. <laughs> yep. It's that first layer that usually yeah. gets you. Because if you don't see the first layer fully down, then usually that's when it's going to fail. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Are you sure? Yes. <laughs> Let's roll. Kirsten says self-destruct. <laughs> In three, two, one. And with that, if you have ideas <laughs> about 3D printing, <laughs> or if you are a free uh, a free D printer, <laughs> that's what I was gonna 3D. say. Um, please let us know. We'd love to see some of your designs. Uh, if you want to send them to us, um, we'd greatly appreciate it, so that we can deconstruct them visually with Chris. And I'm sure he'd enjoy seeing some of your designs as well, because he's designed stuff, and it's very fun. Yep. So. Feel free to send any of that material our way at mediocrecontentpodcast at gmail.com. You can also slide into our DMs, we don't mind, over at Instagram, TikTok, or ye old YouTube at the same handle, Mediocre Content Podcast, and or also catch us live over on Twitch every other Thursday, uh, 3 p.m. PST, 6 p.m. EST, 11 p.m. BST. They're all different times, just in a different zone, so pick the one that makes the most sense to you, and we'll see you at Mediocre Content Podcast on Twitch. Rate us five stars. <laughs> Rate us five stars wherever you listen to podcasts, and we will see you next week. See ya. This has been mediocre content. Thanks so much for listening. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>